Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that practices what it preaches, well, most of the time, on the subject of cars and transport. I'm David Brown. This week we concentrate on Holden, that famous Australian car brand that will soon cease to exist. In the news, we have a series of stories about the development, the good and the bad from General Motors, the button plan and picking the right car for the current situation. And we hear from a range of people whose families owned Holdens, some from the very first model. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Or our Facebook site is Overdrive City. So let's start the program with the news. The name Holden spanned the car manufacturing period that went from small innovative craft companies to huge manufacturers seeking economies of scale. In 1852, James Alexander Holden emigrated to South Australia from Walsall in England and started a company in Adelaide making horse saddles, harnesses and equipment in 1856. In the early 1900s, Ranson Olds in America invented the assembly line and Henry Ford mechanised it. But there were still many independent car makers. The big companies had yet to establish fully owned operations in Australia. Holden first began vehicle production in 1917, making car bodies for imported Chevrolet chassis. In 1931, having been greatly affected by the Depression, Holden merged with General Motors. There have been production or assembly plants in all mainland states of Australia, but these were then consolidated in an engine plant in Melbourne and an assembly line in Adelaide. And then they ceased altogether. General Motors is now seen as a pariah because of retiring the Holden brand in Australia. But while GM has made some huge mistakes, there were times when they were good for Holden. In 1944, the Australian government called for proposals to establish local car manufacturing. General Motors had the best offer, including taking practically all of the financial risk. And they let Holden actively pursue Australian development. It was not a corporate giant stamping on a regional minion. For example, developing cars for the export market. In 1973, Holden exported a record of over 41,000 cars. In 1983, Holden was our biggest exporter of manufactured goods, with sales in today's terms of roughly $615 million. The opportunity to support fell in a heap when General Motors filed for bankruptcy in 2009 and began to focus on profitability, not total car sales. The first Holden was said to be Australian-made for Australian conditions. When the then Prime Minister Ben Chifley launched the first Holden, the 48215, on the 29th of November 1948, he said, It's a beauty. The best-selling cars at the time were the Austin A40 Devon, a four-cylinder 1.2-litre engine with under 30 kilowatts of power, and the Morris Oxford with a slightly larger four-cylinder engine. The Holden had a six-cylinder engine with 50% more power. 
It was bigger, smoother, more comfortable and better performing. It weighed about a tonne, it was shorter than a current Corolla, had a top speed of about 130 kilometres an hour and averaged 9.4 litres per 100 kilometres. It took nearly two years of the average wage to buy. The demise of the Australian car industry is often blamed on the button plan of 1985. This needs to be put into some perspective of what it was and what it tried to do. The Australian market has many different makes and models, more than there are for sale in the US. But for locals to succeed, you need economies of scale. A government could squeeze foreign competitors with higher tariffs, help companies find export markets and or reduce the number of car models. High tariffs hurt customers and diminish export potential, so they reduce tariffs. They encourage model sharing. You could buy, for example, a Commodore badged as a Toyota Lexan. It is often forgotten that reducing the range of local models helps local component makers get economies of scale. We were way behind in that area. The Button Plan did try to address the specific problems of the car industry, but could not manage to create the economies of scale needed. One of the criticisms of Holden was that it kept building big rear-wheel drive cars to tackle the Australian conditions. Hindsight is easy. After the oil crisis of the 70s, Holden set about replacing the Kingswood with a smaller model, the VB Commodore. They lost their market leadership and later models had to get bigger. It's not as if the big, macho, tackle-the-rough Australian conditions image has died. You can see a bulky Ranger Ute or Land Cruiser in an urban street, but a Commodore Ute with a bull bar, kangaroo spotlights and seven CB radio aerials is now really only a show car at the Daniloquin Ute Master. Building a successful car company is more than picking one trend. Ford had the chance with their large Territory SUV, but their parent company did not back the locals to help develop a diesel option for export. They never achieved economies of scale. And that has been the news. Now, our good colleague Fred Brain has been on the program and he grew up on a farm outside Wagga, which was a family with a strong link to Holden cars. Hey, Fred, when did you get television in your place on the farm? I think it was around about 1969. And who won Bathurst that year? Ah, well, of course, that was Colin Bond in a Monaro. And what sort of car do you race now? (laughs) Well, of course, a Monaro. (laughs) (laughs) What else? (laughs) Uh, I just like to understand patterns uh, and what they lead to. The family did have a number of Holdens, didn't they? Yes, yeah, no, I think we're a Holden family along the way, basically. Was that uh, very strong in Wagga? Was there a division of Holden and Ford? Yeah, pretty much so. Yeah, there were, there were Holden people, Ford people, then you had a few Valiant or Chrysler people and then weird people that had English cars as well. <laughs> they were in the minority, of course. You're talking about my heritage there. Uh, oh, sorry. I'm talking, well, in the country, I mean. I mean, the city. Probably normal. 
<laughs> Your first Monaro, you didn't race that, did you? That's still in original condition? Um, yeah, I did. I, mean, I didn't actually race it as such, but I did do a few lap dashes and hill climbs with it along oh. the way. I did. Uh, do you remember, remember the old Amaru dirt circuit and the Amaru hill climb? Yeah. Um, I did both of those. It still had the scars from um, hitting a dirt bank on the Amaru dirt circuit. <laughs> you had to fix the scars from that. You bought an original 350. What did you do with it after you drove it for a bit? Uh, well, then it got parked. It was starting to uh, starting to rust away a bit too much, and then uh, I kind of moved on a bit and um, parked it on the uncle's farm with a view to restoring it in the not-too-distant future. What year was that? <laughs> uh, I think that was about 19... Uh, probably about 1986 or 87, actually. How's the restoration going? Oh, well, it's still awaiting a certain amount of work. <laughs> it's getting there. It's getting there, yeah. <laughs> Slowly. <laughs> <laughs> so you still have it in a shed, but you then built up another Monaro 350 for racing, didn't you? Yes, yes. Uh, 20 years ago, when you could buy a Monaro still fairly cheaply, I bought a uh, six-cylinder one from that era, from a 1970 model, and um, just transplanted all the, the better parts into it, the uh, 350 V8 and four-speed manual, um, and went racing in it, which has been a lot of fun, I must say. It's 20 years ago. It is. That's right. Where am I? Yeah, because we, we did... As you recall, the East Coast Classic Tarmac Rally, that was 2002. Oh, good grief. <laughs> I remember to, talking to Brocky before we did that, saying we were going out in a Monaro, and I said, have you got any advice? And he said, well, they handle quite well, uh, but put the brakes on early and often. <laughs> the brakes were not its strongest point. <laughs> no, that's true enough. Quite true. <laughs> now that they're scrapping the name Holden, is your Monaro's worth more money? Uh, an interesting point. I'm not too sure whether whether it helps or hinders or doesn't make any difference these days. Mm. Uh, given the given they've rocketed up in value in the last sort of ten to fifteen years, anyway, um, you, you kind of wonder whether whether the fact that they stopped making Holdens in Australia, whether that was kind of the, the main, the main um, what would you call, driver of the prices. Mm. So the fact that they're pulling out of Australia, whether that makes a difference now or not, I really don't know, actually. I would presume the badge with Holden on it would now become a little more desirable. Yeah, probably true. I suppose that's true because when you when you start looking ten years down the track, there'd be less and less of those badges on the road anyway, as the normal road cars kind of disappear. Um, so it'll actually be a, be quite a novelty to see one. That's true enough. The price of those Monaros did go up significantly. Does that put pressure on you, not from your own desires, but perhaps from someone else? Um, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> My other half. No, no. I don't. I don't sort of let on how much they might be worth. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's also something that gets you out of the house. 
Yeah, yeah, well, that's true. I think so. He probably looks on that, that as being a positive. <laughs> Do you remember when we were in the East Coast Classic, we took the Monaro around, I think, where was it, Oberon, where yeah. the local Catholic priest came out and blessed the car? Thank heavens he wasn't a Ford follower, otherwise he would have had to do an exorcism. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true, yeah. That was uh, that, that was quite a moment, actually, wasn't it? <laughs> and there was that little kid. Do you remember the teenager came up to you and said, boy, that's an old car? Uh, I've never seen one of them, and you said, "Well, it was, it was built well before you were born." And he said, "Oh, gee, I was fifteen. I'm, I'm 15. <laughs> That's right. And I think it was, thirty, you know, thirty years old at that yeah. stage. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I do recall that too. Yeah, how could anything be that old? And then there was the rather. Um, how can I say this delicately? Uh, there was a lady of full of figure who came out with a T-shirt on, which had the Monaro on the front of it, and um, she had been around at the same time. So I, I, I put a chronologically put that in context. But she had the Monaro T-shirt and she'd kept it all that while. Do you still get people talking to you when you drive it around today? Uh, well, funnily enough, yes. In fact, I've, I've been out in it today because I needed to get it re-registered. Um, and I was filling up with fuel and uh, a lady said to me, a lady probably from our era, she said to me, is that a bit lower than they were originally? And uh, I was talking to her briefly about it. I said, well, yes. Um, and I said, do you remember them when they came out originally? I, I figured she... I would, wouldn't have been insulting her by uh, suggesting she was of that age. <laughs> she said, oh, yeah, I remember them. Yep, but there won't be any more of them now. <laughs> that, was, that was interesting, I thought. I always think that it's best to sort of couch those conversations by saying perhaps your parents might remember them. <laughs> well, there was a younger... Uh, I mean, this is a few days ago. I was talking to a young fellow... Um, who was probably only in his early 20s, who was from England. And he, he was looking at it saying, what sort of car is that? And he was actually driving a latter-day Holden. Ah. But he wasn't aware of the old Monaros. You see, there's none of the uh, faith of uh, current ownership, really, is there? That uh, it's to heck with the history. It's far too much of what does it mean in the present. You've... Your first car wasn't a Holden. Well, no. I mean, it was actually a uh, Toyota Corona, which I'm, I'm assuming is probably not related to the current virus out there, but you never know. <laughs> well, it it was a disease of wanting boring-looking but well-made old cars, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, mate. Good to talk to you. Keep, keep up the good work. Okay, no worries. Thanks for that. I see you, Fred. And that's Fred Brain, who races a 350 Monaro from the 6970 era. You're listening to Overdrive.
Well, we've had Terry Thompson on the program before. He is a director of the ARDC, has a long history in many things, including the New South Wales Road Safety Advisory Council and a whole pile of motoring clubs, including the 48 and FJ Holden Owners Club. He joins us on the line. Terry, you owned a couple of the old Holdens, didn't you? Ah, quite a few, David, yes, quite a few. I can remember this garage I'm sitting in had uh, five of them in here at one stage. Five? Yeah, I was under under pressure to be rid of some, or else. <laughs> uh, dear Sharon is one who has a sense of balance, perhaps. That's it, yes, yes, yes. yes. How early did you buy them? What was the first one you bought? What year was that? Uh, 75, 1975, yes. You got into them, you know, obviously when they were classics and that. How did people respond to them? Oh, the standard thing when somebody saw you driving it was, hey, mate, I had one of these. It was the best bloody car I've ever had. Um, to which I would uh, screw up my nose and say, my God, what have you been driving since? But there you go. <laughs> yes. um, they all forget about the vacuum windscreen wipers and the... Uh, the lousy brakes and the handbrake that wouldn't stay on and all of those little peccadillos that uh, FJs and 48215s used to have, yes. Our memories are not of uh, the best, really. Well, they are of the best. We remember the best rather than the necessarily the worst. And also we remember the circumstances of them, I think. Oh, certainly, certainly. Everybody's had a, an experience uh, in a Holden with um, neither too many... Kids in the back seat, all fighting, um, uh, various other things, the trips to the drive-in, all of that stuff was just wonderful, yes. You had a couple of different body styles of the FJs. What did you have? Mm, yeah, I had uh, quite a few sedans and uh, two panel vans I went through, yes. I found a couple of very rusty old panel vans and I had access to some very good South American panel beaters at that time and I had them restore the body shells back. And I'm pretty sure that both those cars are still on the go, uh, if not working, at least they're, they're club cars. <laughs> um, Terry, did, did the old panel vans, were they used for similar things to the later panel vans? I, I, I'm thinking of moving friends or going camping. <clears throat> oh, yes, 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 uh, yes, that famous uh, back window sticker. Yes, this is my ute, and no, I'm not helping you move the flat. <laughs> well, I used to get a lot of asks for that, but I'd restored them too well, and I didn't want to put, ra put uh, somebody's furniture in there and scratch them all up in the back, because... How strong is the 48 and FJ Holden Owners Club? Uh, well, it's very strong, uh, and at least a couple of others uh, clubs in Sydney. Um, the 48 and FJ uh, Club were pretty much sticklers for original vehicles to the extent of not uh, frowning, or they were frowning, on uh, conversion to 12-volt electrics and things like that, whereas the FXFJ Holden Club Sydney chapter there quite happy with modifications and alterations to the car so yeah it, they get along very strongly a whole new tribe of younger people coming in to take over the cars and, and look after them oh really oh yes three on the tree yeah oh that was wonderful yes and no synchro on first yes i was doing a radio interview at bathurst which stopped me 
sitting in the back seat while Craig Lowndes drove one around the circuit on a display lap. I regret that greatly. <laughs> yes, I took one of mine up there. In fact, the first car I got, I took it up there many, many years ago and Clive Robertson drove it around the circuit um, in a part of a Channel 7 telecast. And he came, I, I actually drove it around the circuit. He only drove it from um, down halfway down Conrad Strait into the pits. And I remember the, the now late Mike Raymond saying to him, gee, you're a brave man. I thought, no, I'm the brave man. I went round the circuit, mate. <laughs> Did he just drive it the last bit because he wasn't confident with the manual? Yes, I think that was the case, yes. Terry, you've done a great work, a lot of work for the, well, no, I was going to say the industry, that's that's wrong, the, the, the love of cars in general, but obviously Holden's in particular. Thank you very much for your time. My pleasure, David. This is Overdrive across Australia. Alan Finlay is, of course, a great friend of the program and is a respected traffic engineer and transport planner. His family has had 12 Holdens over the years, with a predominance in the early part, I believe. And Alan joins us on the line. Alan, I looked at your first six cars. The first five from an FE to an EH were specials, and the next one, an HK, was a premier. Were you the rich family in the street we all envied? <laughs> no, not at all, David. Um, we were uh, very much a middle-class family, but uh, something, I don't know what it was, in 1969, uh, probably with a bit of uh, goading from me, convinced my father that he should go up a level and uh, and get the Premier uh, for his next car. Uh, the other thing I remember about that car is that um, I talked him into the more powerful 186S six-cylinder motor rather than just the 186. Mm. It was a time, wasn't it? The S uh, was 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 a performance car. I mean, they raced some at Bathurst, wasn't it? Or was that the earlier ones, the X2 uh, with the HD Holden? But even the special ones, I mean, they were specials, but they weren't special uh, in any sort of luxurious way that we come to know now. Oh, absolutely not. Uh, I mean, uh, the FC Holden, I remember well, which was my mother's car, uh, which was bought secondhand, I think, when it was about four years old. Um, I remember some very cold trips in that car going up to the Blue Mountains in winter with no heater and, uh, of course, no radio. And uh, we all had to take blankets and um, other um, stuff to keep us warm. And that was the special. Now, you raced an E.H. Holden. Was there great success with that? Oh, look, I wouldn't say great success. It was a, it was a, a bog-standard uh, Holden uh, E.H. 179 manual. So it had the, the larger 179 cubic inch motor uh, and manual transmission. It was not the, the much-coveted S4, which was a special uh, Bathurst edition that Holden put together uh, to try and win uh, Bathurst, which had slightly better brakes and a few other things. But um, I wouldn't say it was uh, greatly successful, but in its class, which I think was in the 2001 to 3000cc category for standard production cars, on a good day, I could be up in the sort of second or third place getter uh, situation. Did it have a 179 badge on the back? They were special. 
They were, yes, and thankfully mine stayed on the back of the car and didn't become a belt buckle, which uh, happened to a lot of other 179 badges. The EH that you raced went out with a bang? Yes, it did. Um, I was uh, competing at a hill climb at Amaru Park um, in the the early uh, 70s and uh, trying to better my times. It was towards the end of the day and I think I'd had about six runs and I was going for a, a really good time on what would have been my second last run. And as I uh, revved the car to its limit in first gear, I heard an almighty bang, and I thought the worst. I thought I'd blown the motor. Um, but as it turned out, the bang was created by one of the fan blades coming off the fan and actually almost piercing right through the bonnet. The fan blade was actually sticking out through the bonnet, and thankfully the rest of the uh, the motor and the car was all right. The solution was to actually remove the whole fan blade assembly and then another friendly and helpful competitor managed to have a hacksaw in his toolkit and so we sawed off the other half of the uh, blade that was still attached to the to the assembly. You did that for balance? Yes, absolutely, yeah, because it, otherwise it had three blades on the fan and, of course, one of them was uh, completely um, offset by not having its uh, its mate on the other side of the hub. So it would have been a very... Uh, noisy and vibrating sort of uh, operation of the engine if we hadn't taken the other blade off. It seems like your early family was somewhat devout to the Holden cause. You were a bit more ecumenical. I was always a very keen Holden fan. I guess my first car being the EH, um, there's a lot of sentimental attachment to the brand and then I bought a Tirana after that. But I, then I started to, I was always a very avid reader of motor magazines and I started to read about all these exotic European and other sorts of cars. So I, um, my next car after the Tirana was an Alfa Romeo Alfa Sud. I regret to say that's probably turned me off Alfa Romeos for the rest of my life. That was a very unreliable car. It was great when it was going well, but uh, that wasn't very often. I went back to Holden's. I had a series of uh, company cars that were Holden's. Uh, there wasn't a lot of choice in the in the company that, that you know well. But when the novated lease arrangement started to be introduced, uh, that opened up a lot more um, possibilities in terms of uh, variety of cars. So when I um, uh, went from my last uh, Commodore, the next car I'd had through the company car arrangement was a Subaru Liberty Wagon, and that appealed to me because of the all-wheel drive nature of all Subarus, and also they had very good safety ratings, and uh, the wagon was very practical. That's Alan Finlay, a uh, person who came from a family of devout Holden owners for a while until final reality settled in with times that were a-changing. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Terry Thompson, Alan Finlay, Fred Brain and Paul Just for their great help during the program. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. And of course, you can go to our Facebook site, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.